This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, the Eagle has taken off. And proposed new drone rules are riling aviation groups. It's not just your imagination. The aircraft market is very hot. The Textron Sky Courier Utility Twin Turboprop is certified. And you may have heard Textron also acquired Pipistrel. Ian, are you ready to do some hangar talk? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, counterattack final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulis. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, Jessica Hernandez. She was at Latinas in Aviation, an event you went to a couple months ago young, successful Latina aviator, and you caught up with her. Indeed we did. She's a Chicago, Chicago-based Chicago corporate pilot. She flies a Hawker 800, and she will tell us not only how to get other young Latinas involved in aviation, but some of her own experience being a Hispanic woman in the aviation world. Okay, cool. So we'll have that a little later. And before we get to the news, Two old dudes are going to tell you about new social technology and a way you have to check in or something. I don't know. David, help, help me out. What is this? Well, I do it all the time, Ian. So, you know, we have the pilot passport, the badge functions for the AOPA pilot passport. And did you know, Ian, that you can get a no, hangar talk I didn't know. badge? <laughs> yes, you can. So I'm going to tell you how to get your hangar talk badge. It's good for a thousand points, folks who want to get a a point boost and you get them for landing at grass fields you land them for helicopter fields sorry helicopter locations you get badges for class b airports class delta etc seaplane ops you got one now for listening to ian and i for all these long months on hangar talk all right you go to the affiliate code redemption page that's under your my points and badges page and type in Hanger Talk 22 doesn't even have to be all caps, it could be lowercase, but all together, Hanger Talk 22, and you're gonna be like me and get a thousand points for your pilot passport badge. Okay, so the only thing I can add to that is it's Hanger H A N G A R. Yes, for those of us who <laughs> learned that the hard way, yeah, H A N G A R. All right, cool. So yeah, go ahead and do that and earn some points for, I don't know what, bragging rights, I guess? Bragging rights. And this is the second year we've done it, Ian. So thanks to our Pilot Passport team for social media uh, promotion and for getting their word out. And thanks to all of our Hangar Talk listeners who have stuck with us for these past six years. All right. So 
the news. The Eagle has taken off. Eagle, you hopefully know what this is by now. This is the Eliminate Aviation Gasoline Lead Emissions Group. This is the group that uh, AOP is an integral part of that is going to come together to get lead out of our aviation fuel. They had their first meeting just recently. David, you were there. I was there. And so the initiative is, Ian has a deadline. The deadline is 2030. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you look at things down the road, 2030 seems like a long way off, but it is not a long way off for this kind of initiative because a lot has to come together. As you mentioned, the first meeting was held last week. As we release the podcast, it'll be about a week after the meeting. It was a two-day stakeholder meeting at the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. And more than 170 participants were brought together, led by AOPA President Mark Baker and the FAA's Earl Lawrence. Now, Earl Lawrence is a Piper Twin Comanche owner. He has his aircraft based in North Virginia, and he has a stake in the game. Yeah, so, an aviation guy up through and through. That's right. Absolutely. So, David, you shot a great picture here, which I think tells the entire story of the group and the gravity of the people that they've brought together and how important this is. So it's Mark in the center. We've got Earl Lawrence to his right. Well, to his left, we're looking at the right. And then on the other side is DOT's Annie Pensonk. And so I think you mentioned George Braley was there from GAMI. We've got the Petroleum Institute. The folks from SWIFT were there. It really is everybody coming together towards this common goal. Yeah, and that's the important part of the meeting. And there was, I will say that they covered some uh, pretty tough subject matter. And it can get a little dense at times. Like, Ian, mm -hmm. I didn't know this, but you know, when you're talking about combustion and you're talking about the, the cycles of an engine, I didn't realize that when you are thinking about retarding the timing to help, you know, engines still run at the appropriate power levels, that it could go out and affect the propeller. Yeah, that's an amazing bit from this story, right? So they were, so that brings up the PAFI process. They have, of course, tested a number of candidate fuels for now years through the Piston Aviation Fuels Initiative process, which was like this closed door stakeholder process where they they kept it kind of, an, I don't want to say anonymous, but it wasn't transparent to the public. In order to, to protect trade secrets, they agreed for the Petroleum Institution and, and all those folks from the petroleum world. So they've been testing these fuels. Nothing really has come out of it that's been successful. So Earl Lawrence says, was it, does it replace PAFI? No, uh, Eagle is, is a supplement to that. Was PAFI a failure because it didn't come up with a drop-in replacement? He says no, because they've learned so much. But getting to the point, they did find, one of the things they learned was that the change in fuel, even it's changed vibration through the propeller, which, yeah, can, can affect its life, which is just incredible. And so the Eagle Initiative builds on that framework accomplished by the PAPI, and that, that was introduced back in 2013. And don't forget, AOPA has been a member of, uh, of this or, you know, steering committee organization for a pretty long time, you know, working behind the scenes, which is super quick. That's another reason to be an AOPA member, to help support processes like this, because aviation fuel for aviators, this, is a, this affects everybody who's in general aviation at this point. So you've got your folks at AOPA being part of these committees, part of the meetings, a part of the folks steering this so that we can find a drop-in replacement that, that will work in, in, in every engine, basically in as many aircraft engines as possible and provide a smooth transition. And some of the people Ian mentioned that, you know, during the transition, say, during, say there's a changeover to a new type of fuel. Well, what if you've got 
you know, a half a tank of, of a certain type of fuel in your aircraft, and then you go to add another type of fuel to it, or say you fly from um, uh, the U.S. to Canada, and then there's a different type of fuel there. So the initiative is trying to bring together all of these different components and make it so that it's, it's a safe alternative that works with everybody. Yeah, very important. So this is obviously how these things get done, and, and it is getting done, which is important. So, hey, moving on, something else we got to talk about that's not necessarily exciting, but really important, drone rules. A few months ago, the FAA waded into what they call an aviation rulemaking committee. This is a group of, again, stakeholders that come together and advise, they come up with a report and advise the FAA on how to move forward. FAA doesn't have to take their advice, but they often do. So this rulemaking committee came together has been meeting often there's dozens of participants from everything from AOPA to drone manufacturers to Amazon and all kinds of others. They have submitted their report and let's just say we don't really agree with it. No, I'll say we don't agree with it at all. There's a it's a greater concern from uh, our perspective at AOPA. We're looking at the fact that there might be a couple of different types of airspace introduced into this already alphabet soup of airspaces. We, we're going basically from A to G already, and we're looking at adding a couple of other different types of airspace, very, very low altitude airspace, Ian. But I think that trying to integrate you know, beyond visual line of sight drone operations, which will, of course, increase as as you know the, the economy starts to use it more and more, but we need to figure out a way to integrate that into our current operations. And I think you might have some insight as a helicopter pilot into some low-level, low-altitude ops that might kind of butt heads with this low-altitude, non-shielded area below 400 feet yeah. idea. Yeah, so they really what they've said is the report says that the group recommends that they have essentially new right-of-way rules based on equipage and not on maneuverability with the way they are now, which of course makes perfect sense because when we're flying around, we see a blimp, we see a balloon, we know that they can't get out of our way. So we get out in an airplane, we get out of their way, right? Right. So the group proposed something completely different, which is basically if you have certain equipment, then you avoid or be avoided. And what it comes down to is, let's say you have maybe an antique airplane and a drone with more modern equipment. Well, the antique airplane has to avoid the drone, which is totally... As we know, yeah, totally opposite of the way it should be and the way that things really would happen in the real world. So AOPA made this point, said, look, there are all sorts of operations down below 400 feet. We're talking ag, a lot of helicopters, powered parachutes. Yeah, power parachute, weight weight shift. shift. Uh All sorts of things. So it is a real, real safety concern. From the beginning, AOPA has said if drones are going to come into the national airspace, they have to come in seamlessly and be able to see a void just like everybody else. So this is a real issue. And AOPA did file a statement of non-concurrence to this, as a number, as did a number of other participants. And like I said, it's all about operating beyond the visual line of sight, BVLOS. And that's a key buzzword and a key term that a lot of folks are going to hear more about in the aviation community and in the non-aviation community as more packages get delivered. We already have seen, you know, medical supplies and, and things like blood being delivered from one part of a of a medical campus to another part, things like that. But this could increase. And you know, like you said earlier, There's you know, UPS and Amazon it. and Walmart, they all have plans for this type of drone operation. So yeah. I see conflicts. I see that there could be a conflict. Say I'm yes. I'm uh you know coming in for a landing, I'm uh, kinda land at a grass strip and a Piper Super Cub that does have a radio. 
and then someone is operating in one of the two new proposed airspaces, but they're adjacent to me, and I'm coming in, and I'm below 400 feet because I'm on final approach. You know, I see this as being something to look out for, whereas before, you know, I just I just think that this that you're opening this airspace to some potential safety hazards. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So something we'll keep watching. This is not, uh, this is the beginning, really. Well, the middle of the process, let's call it. It's not the end all be all. They don't have to take the committee's recommendations, but we will continue to advocate for seamless integration. And we'll be right back. David, the aircraft market, we know it's on fire. You and I have talked about this, well, uh, as potential aircraft owners uh, many times. Now there is a report out that uh, you found is a really good one from Sand Hills Aviation, which you probably haven't heard of, but Controller, which they own, you have. And they get into what's going on in the market and what's been going on the past couple of months. And it is, boy, it's it's even more amazing than I think we had imagined. I'm going to call this astounding. Yeah. Like you said, Sand Hills uh, Equipment Value Index. Now, these are the folks behind Controller.com. And they're pretty slick, uh, printed, printed, you know, magazine-ish looking uh, mm-hmm. you know, publication and also online. Listen, Ian, for the piston single aircraft category, they posted a 24.2% year-over-year asking value price increase. And that was as of February. That um, The normal, I say the average, ask, uh, EVI was $237,000. That's up from 191,000 bucks in February 2021. And this is based these the prices here we're talking about are based on aircraft that are between 0 and 10 years old. So these are yeah. more more or less newer air, airplanes. Mm-hmm. But a 24.2% increase in one year yeah is is pretty amazing. It is. And anecdotally, I mean, they talk about the asking price because that's what they're able to track. But, you know, anecdotally, we hear people are getting their asking prices, if not more. So I think we can equate that also to, to actual values. And, and of course, what drives that is the demand and supply side. So demand, we think, is up. Supply is way down. So they also down, said in down that, by thirty three percent. In fact, year yes. over year, supply yep. is down. As you, when you're looking to buy an airplane, like I've been kind of looking off and on, and it's amazing. As soon as people post an airplane on Facebook, for instance, Facebook Marketplace, yeah. you can click on it an hour later, and it says sold. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing, amazing stuff. So this this is really good data. I will say anecdotally, I, I just last week talked to a broker in the twin turboprop segment. And we know the light jets have been really on fire as well. And he also sells some light jets. And he said he thinks just in the last two weeks, things are starting to maybe sort of normalize a little bit. He, you know, who knows why, but he thinks it coincided a bit with what's going on over in the Ukraine. So some uncertainty there. And then also inflation. He thinks maybe inflation is starting to have an impact on that. So I, but the the key here is, and this is what they talk, you know, this is what some of the folks from VRF talked about when we talked to them a couple months ago. Even if things slow down a little, they're going towards healthy. So it's not like we're going from on fire to really terrible market with the flip of a switch. Probably what we're going to go to is on fire to hopefully a little more normalized. So it won't be a complete bottom coming out of the market, but it might normalize a little bit. Listen, I need to clarify one thing. When I, when I was talking about the average prices, you know, we're looking at a 24.2% year-over-year asking 
value price increase. That was a, a, across the whole fleet. What uh, and it went from two hundred thirty-seven thousand dollars. It was up from one hundred ninety-one thousand in twenty twenty-one. And what I meant to say was in the zero to ten-year age group, which is just fifteen percent of the total inventory, that saw a $49,000 increase between January of this year and February of this year. So these are newer airplanes, you know, in the in the four or $500,000, you know, range, but it went up, they went up 50,000 bucks in one month. Incredible. Yeah. So what, what people are, you heard people saying, well, I'm going to wait out the market. It's like, well, you're just continuing to get priced out of it, I think is what's going on, at least for the short term. So, Ian, are there are there any values left? We talked about this before. Oh, yeah, I know. And, you know, Dave Hirschman just wrote a story for Pilot about before I said, based on some recommendations from brokers that we were talking to, that maybe the light twin market is still a pretty good bargain. And he's saying, well, even those uh-huh. prices are, going are recovering. Yeah, I mean, it used to be you could get it for the price of the engines or less. And the LSA market might be something to consider. You and I talked Talked about that a couple of hangar talk shows ago. Yeah, I still think that older VTL bonanzas might be like sort of the hidden nut in all this. You know, the hidden the hidden gem. Yeah, and um, you know, near and dear to my heart, air coupes. They're still relatively affordable, hmm. and the Mooney C and E models have not quite, you know, risen past the the hundred ninety thousand dollar mid seventies. It's 172 Cessnas. Okay, so curious. What's what's uh, before we go to the the Sky Carrier? What's uh, an air coupe, decent air coupe with a mid-time engine? Yeah, about twenty five thousand dollars. Okay, yeah. So I think that's that's relatively affordable. This so is all up, relative, but not well. Uh, uh, right, but a Cessna 150, which is also a two place airplane that still goes about a hundred miles an hour. Yeah. Those are now forty or fifty thousand wow. yeah. dollars and up. I would say anything for the training market is like forget about it. It's tough. Even even the even the um, later model beach uh, Beechcraft. What was that? The Skipper and the um, and the Piper Tomahawk. You know those used to be hidden <laughs> gems That's, as well. Uh, depending on how you look and, at well, it. Well, right? yeah. relatively right. <laughs> A lot of people don't want to fly them. I get it. But they used to be relative values, put it that way. And even those are, are jumping up there, as is like a, a Beechcraft, what the Musketeers used to be sort of the— Yeah, they were good the, We forgot about them airplanes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 Sundowners. Mm-hmm. Those are jumping up yeah. to $40,000, $60,000 wow. as well. So, mm. Well, something that's not a value but is really cool, uh, let's say, the Sky Courier. So Cessna— about a year, even less than a year after its first flight, this I, I just find that amazing. It is certified. The Sky Courier has been certified. FAA's type certification earned just this month. And, you know, FedEx is on the hook to buy the first 50 of them, and they have an option for 50 more. And just to let people know, this is a really capable airplane. It's not just a cargo mover. It could be a people mover also. And you're looking at a 210-knot maximum cruise airspeed. I'm going to read a couple of figures. If you're loading pallets on there, three of those industry standard big pallets can get loaded in to that airplane. It has a nose baggage area that holds 300 pounds. That's that's not something that's often talked about in this airplane because you're looking at a 6,000-pound, you know, payload. That's awesome. And a 19,000-pound max takeoff weight. 
72 feet of wingspan, 21 feet in height. Listen, I've been underneath the tail feathers of that thing. It's it's like looking up a two-story building to get to the top of that. Wow. But what a cool airplane. It is really cool, I got to say. So, yeah, passengers, I love the little mock-up photo they have. I would not want to be a passenger on one of these. I mean, you're talking, it looks even smaller than a Beach 1900. I don't know if it is, but I mean, I guess for the developing world, it probably represents you know, a new airplane that they can add to the fleet, 19 passengers. It's really nice. Two engines, obviously. I will say for pilots, this thing is going to be awesome. Oh, because yeah. Because before you had to go to the FedEx feeders, you were flying caravans. There was always that decision like, well, do I get the turbine time, even though it's single? Or do I stay and get like piston twin time, maybe closer to home or something? This, you don't have to worry about it. You're going to get a type rating with the weight, which is really important. You're going to get those two turbine engines. That's a big deal. And it's still, you know, sort of intro level to fly, let's call it skill wise. Well, yeah, fixed landing gear. I mean, that's the other thing. Nose wheel steering, manual brakes. There's nothing unconventional about that. You know, uh, basically uh, manual controls as we're used to. Yeah. And what's cool about this, I think this is really neat from an operator perspective, that single point pressure refueling mm -hmm. that's kind of unique and that i can see that really helping that the turnarounds yeah. yeah 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 and and you mentioned the 19 seat configuration you could also it's got a stand-up cabin you know it's almost six feet tall mm. uh inside but you could also configure it for nine passengers and like a combination floor plan yeah. so sort of a semi-corporate kind of a deal yeah, or that's like your Alaska configuration because you take passengers okay, and right. cargo. Okay, right, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, good point. That's a good point. Yeah, you're right. I like that. It's a cool airplane, super cool airplane. I think that's it, they're obviously going to have huge success with it just like they have with the Caravan. So I can you can see all sorts of uh, applications all over the world for it. So in Cessna, man, they know how to certify airplanes. Like well, That was less an than a year amazing amount flight. of time. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And what do they say? It has almost, they have almost 3,000 hours of test flights on the on the fleet so well, tom, tom horn participated in the test bed bunny you know on that airplane with mm -hmm. the, the iron bird i guess is what they call it yeah you know it's, it's, it's got some great stats on this airplane takeoff distance 2700 feet 920 940 nautical miles range depending and twenty five thousand feet maximum altitude so you can get there yeah Cool stuff. All right, so hey, something else that everybody's been talking about, a big deal, Textron, so not Cessna specifically, but Textron has purchased Pipistrel, the, we call them an electric pioneer. They do so much more. They're out of Slovenia. They make all sorts of cool motogliders, electric airplanes, sleek four-seaters. It's now all Textron. Well, that puts Textron in the pilot seat, if you will. I was going to say driver's seat, but I'll say pilot seat. Basically, puts them in the pilot seat uh, on the in the electric market. And there's some stiff competition. We've talked about George Bai from Bai Aerospace out of Denver. They're developing two-place and four-place and larger electric aircraft. But now Textron has their their own line. It's Their, their airplanes, the Pipistrel Alpha Electra, has already been flying. Yeah, certified in Europe. Yep. Proven technology. Yeah. So they can add that to the renowned brands of uh, Beechcraft, Bell, of course, Cessna. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of interesting synergy, Ian. What do you think? They, they bought an up-and-coming company that has some really neat technology. And like that Panthera, that is a slick-looking four-passenger airplane. Yeah. You know? it's, it's super cool. I, I totally agree. I think you should uh, start letting go now because it's dead. 
the Panthera? Dead. Totally dead. But why? Is that because there's a Cessna 182 four-passenger in the Textron line that, you know, is already there and the Beechcraft A36s? Yeah. I think if you look at the history of what, of how Textron acquires these companies. So they bought Columbia. Now, that was oh, out of bankruptcy. Oh, that's right. The, right. You know, they, they created, they adapted and then created the Corvallis and then TTX. That is, I mean, that airplane was fantastic in every way just an incredible airplane flew beautifully four really passenger well low wing exactly yeah. like kind of like the pantera yeah yeah it was a competitor to the cirrus and the mooney and i think was better than both in terms of a pilot's airplane it was incredible they basically bought the company for the composite knowledge and then never really used it gotcha they had some problems with composites early i think they tried to move into mexico it didn't really work so it was kind of it was a total flop should have been a success total flop you know, they, they've manufactured, they created and manufactured an LSA, total flop. They just didn't have the commitment to it. The 162 was, yeah. uh, they crushed all those airplanes. I saw one of those for sale recently, by the really? way, when I was looking. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, How much well, was it going wonder, for, you remember? Well, I forgot, I forgot, Ian, but the other thing is that, what about support for something like that? That's the other thing. Oh, my God, yeah, you're on your own, and which with an LSA is a problem. Right. Now, the Panthera, I configured a Panthera for myself, Ian, as a four-person low-wing airplane. It's you know, got, got a big honking engine on it. It's IFR certified, uh, Part 23, and it's uh, with a parachute because I config- you can go online and configure it yourself. With a parachute, I, I went ahead and got it made for, or could get it made for 655000 U.S. dollars. That's less than a Cirrus. Yeah. Yeah, they don't care. They don't, they don't care about the Venthera. They, if, and I think it's really telling what they're going to do with it. They call it, they're calling it an E-division, an E-market. Uh-huh. They're interested in the electric, the electric technology. I don't think they particularly care about the current platforms. They want the, they want the engineering expertise and the electric expertise. Exactly. I think you're looking at probably drones in the future, eVTOL. It gets them into the eVTOL world, along with Bell. Oh, wow. I didn't even think about that. Well, with Bell having the, EV, uh, the, the vertical takeoff specialty, they already already are a huge player in that. They yeah. can marry these two and have some, some real synergy there, Ian. That's a real good point. Yeah, so they're going to call it Textron E-Aviation and develop sustainable aircraft. So I don't think they care about the Panthera. I don't think they care about the old motor gliders. It's like it's all about electric for them. So I, if they try and get the Velus Electro certified in the States, they do obviously have, as we've seen with the with the Sky Courier, they have the resources to get that done and, and the expertise. And so that would be great. And maybe they'll do that just as a sort of proof of concept. But yeah, it, it is. If you are a big Pipistrel fan, I think you're disappointed in this news. Well, I configured a Pipistrel Virus two-person Alpha Electro myself, and that's $195,000. So, you know, if you're a flight school that you know, quote unquote, affordability. That kind of is, I think, affordable. And I configured the regular uh, engine, the conventional engine model together. And that's about 198000 bucks. So they're very comparable. But for a two-person, brand-new airplane, you know, that could, that could make some sense, I think, if you're flying in the pattern. You're teaching your students how to get started. You don't have to go that far. I mean, there could be some benefits of that. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. All right, David. So that's, I think, I think we've talked enough this week about the news um, that we had some good topics this week. Let's hear from Jessica Hernandez. She's got a lot to say about what it means to grow up in aviation as a Latina, what some of the opportunities are as a professional pilot. I think it's a great interview. I'm so glad you got to talk to her.
Jessica, tell us what you do these days in aviation. What's your job? Well, I'm a corporate pilot. I fly a Hawker 800 XP out of Gary, Indiana and I do, uh, do charter flights for our company. Now we're here at uh, Latinas and Aviation Day at College Park, Maryland. It's a historic airport. Tell us what brings you here. Well, what brought me here was coming across all these amazing women and Jackie putting us all together. They asked if my, my friend Jasmine at the time, she was my co-worker and they asked her if she knew another Latina pilot. There was this uh, woman trying to write a book about Latinas in aviation. I got to meet Jackie and then like the rest is history. We got to be in the book and just really honored to be with all those amazing women. How did you meet Jacqueline Ruiz? Through Jasmine. She actually, no, I, actually I was referred to Jackie by my DP when I got my private check ride. He suggested me to connect with Jackie, but for some reason in the life we, we really didn't connect. And my DP was just very thrilled that he had just done a check ride for another Latina. Of course, it's nothing really common, so he thought that it was a good idea if we connect each other. But then later on in life, Jasmine was the one who eventually got me to, to meet with Jackie and um, be in the book. Okay, so you mentioned uh, that there aren't that many Latinas in aviation. It begs the question, how can we get more involved? Representation is key. I think that what the book has as a purpose is just to show other people that look like us, that come from very similar backgrounds, that speak like us, and that it's possible to achieve what we achieved in aviation and even more. When we get to a cockpit, it's really rare to see someone that looks like us, that speaks like us, especially here in the U.S. So it's really key that we represent those positions in which they can be eventually later on in life. And and show them that there is, if, if there is a will, there is a way. When you got started in aviation, take me through the steps that, that got you into aviation. Did you, in other words, did you come through it through normal channels like, I, like some of us private pilot, then instrument commercial, or did you go to an aviation college or school? I went to a Part 61 school. It was an accelerated fast track program that took me from private pilot to CFI in about 12 months. So I did that and then I became a flight instructor. I was doing that for a little bit over a year and a half. And then after that, I, that's how I got my corporate aviation job. Where did you instruct when you were CFI? Out of the Chicago area. So I instructed out of the DuPage Airport and then the Bolingbroke Airport a little bit further south. You gotta tell us how you decided to pursue aviation. Well, I always wanted to become a pilot. I grew up in a military family. My parents worked for the Colombian Air Force. That's the route I wanted to follow, but unfortunately, you know, life had other plans. And I kind of like had given up a little bit on that dream. And then I moved to the U.S. seven years ago. And I saw that aviation in the U.S. is a lot different than what it is in Colombia. So here, the opportunities and the just the aviation industry is a lot wider and a lot more accessible to different kinds of people. So I decided, you know, that I might take up on a loan and just start my journey here, which I never thought it was going to be possible. And thankfully, I'm, I'm here today. So the United States provided an opportunity to you that would have been more difficult in Colombia. Yeah, it, it was definitely more difficult. I had taken another path in my career. I had already a bachelor in something totally non-aviation related. So I never thought this was going to be my ultimate, you know, career or what I was going to do for a living. And the U.S. definitely, you know, it was a, it's a land of opportunities and it was the land that gave me the opportunity to become a pilot. So a lot of us have an aviation mentor. I'm going to make a guess that you might have as well. 
I have a lot of mentors, yes, and I got the opportunity to meet a lot of uh, women that fly for the airlines, and they definitely encouraged me and provided me with some resources into where to go, how to study, what to expect, and it's just, I can't single one person. I, I have a lot of people that along the way have become my mentors. So everything from airline pilots to my peers, to DPEs, to chief pilots for other companies, they, they have really paved the way for, for, for getting me here today. Tell me a little bit about flight instruction. You said you did some instruction, you operate out of Gary. Is that where you also teach when you're not working? Uh, no. Corporate? No, so um, I'm a flight instructor and I did that for a year and a half. I, I did it out of the DuPage Airport and then Bolenberg. And it was an amazing experience. You really kept me sharp and it made me feel that I was giving back to the aviation community. So I was, as much as I learned, I was also giving back to the aviation community. I was uh, taking people, you know, to their first solo or maybe just getting back into aviation, people that haven't flown for 20 years. So it was all sort of backgrounds and it, it made me feel that I was a meaningful part of their journey as much as they were being a meaningful part of my journey. So it, it was a, a very win-win situation. So it was a two-way street? Mm-hmm, yes. And do you, did you mentor some other young pilots that are standouts now? Yeah, I got the opportunity to do that, which, you know, you, you never think that your story is going to inspire or be meaningful to someone else. But once you start talking about it and the hardships that you have encountered along the way, you are more relatable to people. So unfortunately right now, due to my schedule, it's kind of hard for me to do part-time just because I won't be able to really focus and give all my attention to a student. It will take me a a long time to to get them through any rating or something but it's my goal to eventually continue in aviation that's why I just renew my my CFI through AOPA with the FERC and I you know hope to to keep it valid and keep it current just because I feel that as instructors as pilots being a flight instructor keeps us sharp and it's a great way as I say to give back to the aviation. You mentioned giving back a couple of times how important is giving back? It's, uh, it's very important, it's key, because that's what really it's keeping you, like it keeps you humble and it, it makes you appreciate everything that you have accomplished a lot more because sometimes you can lose sight of your accomplishments and how important it is to uh, get other people to achieve their dreams and get to probably where you are or even further. So you are here with 15 to 20 other amazing Latina women right now. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel really humbled just because I feel that a lot of them paved the way and broke the, the glass ceiling for me to get right. here today and made sure that we got a shot to be represented and highlighted in so many aspects of the aviation community. So it's a really humbling experience and I'm so grateful for it. I'm curious as to, yet again, how can we get other young people involved in aviation? This is a common stumbling block and not just in aviation but in some other fields too. How can we get more young people involved? I think right now through social media is a, is a great platform to outreach and to be relatable. So just to show other people that you don't only have to be a pilot to be part of aviation, but there are so many other options and that's what the book is really about. Like just to show that if you don't want to be a pilot because you're afraid of heights or maybe uh, you have some medical restriction that doesn't allow you to be a pilot, that is not a deterrent for you to 
not pursue a position in aviation. So I think that by outreaching social media, social events, and events like what we're having today, really, really inspire people to, to, to get involved in aviation and also also sharing your story, not being not being selfish with what you have accomplished and all the hardships and good things and people along the way. Um, networking is key just to everybody to get in aviation, even as a hobby as well. What's in the future for you right now? Well, in the future is uh, hopefully fly uh, the bigger plane I can and the faster plane I can. So uh, that, that's, I guess, uh, the goal that a lot of pilots have. So just fly whatever is bigger, whatever is faster. Right now, I'm, I'm really happy learning a lot. I'm a very young first officer, so I have a lot to learn. And I've been you know, meeting a lot of great captains that have helped me to improve my skills. And, and you know, corporate aviation is a lot different to flight instructing. So I think corporate is going to be in my near future. And who knows, maybe the airlines later on. Thank you guys for being here and to just uh, always providing you know, really good resources to pilots because I have used the uh, resources that IOPA provides and you know as a flight instructor as a aviation nerd uh, I just love everything that that IOPA has provided so I appreciate you guys from being here thank you for sticking around for us no, today. No, no, quick, uh, what is what is the main message you tell young people the main message just to do whatever uh, lights a fire inside their heart just uh, do whatever makes you happy do whatever you know sometimes we we're very quick at jumping at but what if, or, or to, to jump to the butts, but never to try to think in what can be possible to uh, overcome those, uh, those butts. So just, just go for it. Just, if, if you want to, to go for something, just uh, do it, because if there is a will, there is a way. David, thanks for uh, talking to Jessica. So if you're interested in, if you're a Latina who's a pilot, interested in meeting more, getting together, or just want to help support that community, they are having a second event this October, I believe, at College Park Airport, same place. So put it on your calendar. I'll put it on mine for sure, because it was a real pleasure to meet the Latina aviators. And I'm so glad that Jacqueline Ruiz brought them together. And uh, I'll definitely be making plans for October. Cool. All right. That's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash talk and wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.